week a video surfaced of a bus full of Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity members at Oklahoma University chanting racist lyrics. There was immediate outrage and some concrete consequences. Students held a protest against the racist behavior. The SAE house was closed by the university administration, and the two students who led the chants were expelled. I'm glad I'm not a college president who has to deal with events like this on college campuses. So I'm not trying to be a Monday morning quarterback. But a black professor at SMU who's also an ordained deacon in the United Methodist Church has written an article. And it has raised some interesting thoughts for me about how we deal with situations like this. Maria Dixon Hall's article is titled, A Teachable Moment, How OU Failed Transformation 101. In her article, Hall describes the middle ground between youth and adulthood that 18 to 21 year olds inhabit, a place she calls as promising as it is dangerous. She acknowledges that most extreme outrage has a component of hypocrisy in it. After all, if we're absolutely honest, who among us has never had a single thought or uttered a single remark based in prejudice or stereotype of some kind? She calls racism a congenital heart condition. For whether it's articulated or not, racism permeates our culture at a subconscious level and we're exposed to it from the day we are born. And finally, and this is what I want to focus on, she claims that the most effective way to deal with racism is to reveal the gap between racist views and reality. What if, she poses, the young men of SAE had been invited to watch the embarrassing, hurtful video of their racist chants over and over again, with the black men who clean their rooms and cook their meals sitting right there with them? What if Walter, a cook who's worked at the SAE house for 15 years, she says, what if he would then ask the young men, is this what you really think of me? Maria Dixon Hall describes the possible result beautifully. She writes, see most racists, like homophobes, hold to their views in isolation. I believe when those young men came face to face with the people who cared for them and loved them, the full impact of their behavior would be clear. How can you profess love for a God you have not seen while hating or hurting your brother that you see every day? Human consciousness is a most powerful ally in the battle for social justice. Truth be told, Society in general would probably rather expel, exile, or hide its troublemakers than facilitate their transformation. It's more comfortable not to have to face our own sins and the sins of another. It's more comfortable to pretend such things don't exist than it is to acknowledge their pervasiveness and our complicity. It's more comfortable to keep our deeds in darkness. But when we sweep such social sins out of our sphere of awareness, we diminish the chance at transformation for all of us. Maybe this is partly what lies behind today's Old Testament story. And you knew I was not going to pass up a chance to preach on snakes. <laughs> the Israelites are tired of wandering in the wilderness. 
They are frustrated because they have to take a circuitous route into the promised land because they were denied passage through the land of Edom. And they are sick and tired of eating manna and quail. So they fall into an all-too-familiar pattern in the book of Numbers. The people begin to complain. Usually they just complain against Moses, but this time they complain against God too, saying, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and water, and we detest this miserable food. Right there we see a problem with logic, not to mention gratitude. So God sends poisonous serpents into the camp, and some of the people are bitten and die. Like always, the people run to Moses, asking him to intercede with God on their behalf, to ask God to take away the serpents. And Moses does. God tells Moses to make a serpent and put it on a pole, and whenever someone is bitten, they are to look at that serpent on a pole and live. So Moses makes a bronze serpent and puts it on a pole. It's an odd story. One that might be buried in obscurity were it not for the fact that Jesus mentions it in his conversation with Nicodemus. But I think the story does tell us something that is very true and important about sin and redemption. The snakes are a tangible reminder of the people's sins, their stinging complaints, their lack of trust, their never-ending ungratefulness. When the people repent and ask Moses to intercede on their behalf, God could have responded by taking the snakes away, by returning things to the way they were before as if nothing had ever happened. Instead, God brings healing by keeping the people's sin ever before their eyes, a large serpent on a pole where everyone in the camp can see. No pretending it isn't there. No avoiding the uncomfortable reality of its presence. No chance to believe that the problem has been overcome when it's really just been relegated to the subconscious. The people have to look at their sin before they can be healed of it. In fact, looking at it is the very source of the healing. This idea is especially important during the season of Lent. We don't spend these weeks looking at the ways we need our lives to be different as some gloomy exercise in self-flagellation. Lent is about bringing these things into our consciousness so that we can be healed, so that we can be transformed, both as individuals and as a community. As all the 12-step programs remind us, we are only as sick as our deepest secret. We might prefer that God just send the serpents away, exile them, expel them. It would be easier than having to face them head on. But God is in the business of transformation. We have to look at our sin to find redemption. We have to look at the cause of our sickness to find healing. We have to look at what brings us death in order to find life. This is our journey through Lent. Sounds a lot like the path to resurrection to me.